Hey there, I'm Ant Morehouse, and welcome to the Antitoxin Podcast. The Antitoxin is designed for the professional who has ticked all the social norm boxes but feels like something is missing. The entrepreneur at risk of losing perspective, and the dreamer who wants to turn their epic idea into reality. Join me and my awesomely authentic and vulnerable guests as we explore how to avoid living lives of quiet desperation and instead aim to achieve what I call the triple crown of having a fulfilling professional life while doing some good in this world while having a hell of a lot of fun along the way. Hi there, fellow humans. My guest today is Mike McGrath, and Mike was my advisor on my board for a long time, and he helped me in my corner as an advisor, as a mentor, I think from about maybe eight employees up to about 150-odd in this company called Dynamic, and he was just so instrumental to so many parts of that ebb and flow roller coaster. And I found Mike and the story goes into it in the interview, but you know, what really attracted me to Mike was that he came through the school of hard knocks and all of the lessons that he was really teaching me were from things that he'd learnt through his own doing, learnt through the mistakes that he'd made. And Mike had this beautiful way of helping me, educating me from the mistakes that he'd made so that I didn't have to make them. True mentorship. And that enabled me to go out and make a whole heap of new mistakes And that's all part of the journey. I've had some feedback that people want to know a little bit more about my story. Maybe I'm being too much just the interviewer asking the questions. So I'm trying a bit of back forward, a bit more conversational in this one. I hope you enjoy. Mike, uh, thanks very much for coming onto the show today. I really appreciate it. And you and I go a fair way back. And I remember, you know, when I was first getting dynamic my main business up and running and and I needed help and I started calling management consultants and I didn't know what I wanted but I I knew what I didn't want and that was someone who read all the books done all the theory had the MBA but hadn't necessarily done it themselves and I chanced upon you and from day one your real world experiences has you know struck me and and you were on my board for a very long time and helped Mm. help navigate uh my path all the way really through to through to exit and there's a there's a lot of stuff about entrepreneurism and merger acquisitions that that you taught me so um so firstly thank you for that yeah it's a pleasure look i remember it well so uh you know i was grateful for the chance to uh i was quite new to australia at that time i I was here i got here about 12 years ago so probably been it's probably 10 years ago and was it that we teamed yeah would be about that okay yeah i think you were one of my first clients in terms of consulting and trying to help people Uh, so yeah and look I think you did an amazing job I mean I think you were doing a million bucks when I met you of revenue and I remember thinking that that was pretty small and you know but you were pumped and you had a very clear vision of what you wanted to do and you know I think we peaked at Dynamic at about 25 mil that is an amazing accomplishment to go from your kitchen table to 25 mil in a effectively a white collar consulting time and materials type business that's a pretty staggering achievement so uh not many people get to do that let me tell you it's a pretty rocky road uh that's that's for sure that yes there's probably yes. at least at least two or three bankruptcies along the uh journey mate that you helped us uh, navigate away from so yeah well it's messy isn't it like you know that's the whole point yeah. about having some real world experience around is that you can navigate the messy because it's it is messy you know life's quite messy isn't it it is so we were just talking offline before about our entrepreneurs and you've certainly been around the traps both within your own businesses and you've done turnarounds and yes then advising on a heap of businesses and now now you're in the merger acquisition world helping helping founders to to sell sell their business and realize some value so What's your, what's your theories on that? Is yeah. It's, it's a good question. And I was thinking about my own journey, you know, what was, what was it about me that made me entrepreneurial and was, you know, is that genetic? Is it in the family? My granddad, so I come from a working class sort of background. My dad was in construction, but my granddad on my mother's side was, he, he left, he was a mechanic and he left the uh, army uh, or he left the air force at the end of the second world war and he went 
into uh, eventually went into business and he had his own garage and he used to sell minis in the midlands just down the road from british leyland and he was a really successful car salesman in the 50s and 60s when there was a lot of cars to sell and i remember he used to go to his garage and i remember always thinking how well he was doing and how cool that life appeared compared to everyone else who seemed to be clocking on and clocking off and i think at some 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 subconscious level I locked into that and thought, yeah, that was cool. And then I just think I had an innate ability to, I think entrepreneurs are really problem solvers and they're generally quite optimistic. So I think I fell into that category of being probably more optimistic than pessimistic. And I had a sense that, you know, it was better to be constructive and try and solve problems. And, um, and I was kind of good at selling things or is it selling things or customer service? I'm not sure. I, I, I mentioned, I think I mentioned to you previously that I, my first job was, um, I had a baker's round when I was nine and I was being paid £1.70 a week. And I was in the holidays, I was working Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday. And then in school time, I was just doing a Saturday. And I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world to be useful and you know, you don't need much money at nine or 10, but it was just great to be useful. And I used to run up and down these drives and deliver the bread and the baker just used to sit in the van because he had bad legs. That was the deal, basically. Uh, I pestered him until he gave me a, a job. Yeah, and from that day, I just switched on to the world of work, I think. I remember getting tips of 20 pounds. This was in probably 19, this was pretty early, early 70s in the UK, in Solihull and Birmingham. And I was getting, I remember getting 20 quid in the week before Christmas, just on a Saturday in tips. And I figured out if I was smart, if I smiled and was pleasant, people gave me money. <laughs> so that's what I did. <laughs> anyway, I'm not sure whether, whether how much of it was in eight. And, um, and I also think that, you know, there are different kinds of entrepreneurs and, I think we've all got an entrepreneurial tendency. It, I'm just not sure it's, it's developed very well through the school system and through our culture generally, actually. Certainly in the UK, you know, I grew up in a culture where you had, you know, the class system was very prevalent and you were being streamed at 11, basically blue collar and white collar. And um, so, you know, I had to, I sort of had to fight that system really. Or I felt I was, you know, I wasn't going to tolerate being you know judged and thrown on a and i think one of the things that really you know i i mean what do you think and do, do you think were you born an entrepreneur or, did, or, did, or was it, were you heavily influenced down that road so there was no one in my family none of my friends i certainly had no education in it and then the military doesn't teach you to be an entrepreneur but i was always self-motivated and and i always say always had a healthy and sometimes unhealthy disdain for authority. And I think there's a bit of a theme around that. Some people get up later in life. You know, it's sort of they've, they've, worked, for, they've worked for a big business and they know how things run. Right. In 40s and we go, you know, screw this. I don't want to play by the rules anymore. And then there's people, I guess, a little bit more like you and me who maybe had that earlier on. But, but I, always, I always, whenever I'm meeting entrepreneurs they're more likely to be the people who go, yeah, I've, I've read the rules. I've read all the rules in depth, actually. And so now I know how to navigate around them rather than just, you know, follow them blindly. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting observation. Uh, um, I think I definitely had that, you know, just disdain for being told what to do without any real reason, you know, just rules for their own sake just gave me the shits, really. When I reflect on that, and even, you know, you're, let's say, what, maybe you're like 20 years or so older than me, and actually the traits that we're talking about here, this disdain for authority, hating being told to do something without a why attached mm. we sound like millennials. We sound like... Why. Right. I just haven't got the beard. Yeah. Right. yeah. I, I wish I was a millennial, actually. Um, yeah. yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Look, I think... Uh, I think it's an interesting subject. I mean, the word entrepreneur was outside of my vocabulary. I, I didn't, as a kid, I, no one, you know, people weren't talking about entrepreneurship in my street, let me tell you. The first time I came across the word, I think, was I'd come to Australia on a working holiday visa when I was 21. 
and I read some books. I was reading a lot. From about the age of 18, I started reading quite prolifically, actually. I mean, I, I've really been a book a week man since about the age of 18. And all, to my eternal shame, actually, all nonfiction. <laughs> so I haven't really read any fiction except that which was prescribed at school because I felt like life wasn't very long and I really didn't have time to be putting up with uh, uh, fiction stuff. But I read the front and the back off anything I could get my hands on. And I, when I was reading in Australia, I read this book. One was called How to Master the Art of Selling by Tom Hopkins. And the other was um, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. And in one of those books, it referred to entrepreneurship. I think Napoleon Hill did. And I remember when I left Australia to go back to England with an idea I had in a briefcase to open up a piece of business. I put down in the, in the form as you left Australia, when it said occupation, I put down entrepreneur. So in that year in Australia, something had definitely triggered. I'm not even sure I could spell it, to be honest with you. It is a hard word to spell. <laughs> but I had a crack at it. The French, see, they want to complicate everything. Yeah, well, I, I hated the term because coming out of the army, definition of success is how many people you're in charge of. Right. And so I wanted to be a, a businessman. I wanted to be a CEO, you know, and, and for way too long, the definition of success was, you know, I'd, I'd go to a dinner party, let's say, and talk about with a fragile ego in sort of startup land, talk about how many people I had on my team rather than, rather than you know, how much money or how many clients or how many users or whatever. And at that time, you know, I guess we're, early 2000s in Australia, I think entrepreneurism meant like a, an Alan Bond, Richard right. Safe, you know, used car salesman, you know, white shoes and big chains and, yes. greedy, you know, a shyster. It wasn't until I went over to, to Colorado, to Boulder, that people were using that term to mean creative, to mean yes. self-starter, to mean go-getter, to mean, you know, someone who's creating something from nothing. And so, yeah, so I'd, I'd been kind of doing it for 13, 14 years before mm. I actually kind of decided that I liked the term. Now, I think it's completely overused. Anyone and everyone sort of is one, wants to be one. And, and I'm, I was talking to a guy in the US. I've, I've done some, some cool business with him uh, named Yade. He's actually been on the podcast mm. and he hates it. So he's, he's only 28 years old. All right. And he hates it and he hates what social media has done to entrepreneurism okay? because, you know, there's this big flashy follow these 10 tips and earn six figures in your first year. And then there's a photo of a guy with a, with a Ferrari, you know, like, mm. like doing a hundred thousand dollars worth of revenue is going to put you in a Ferrari kind of thing. I think it's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so too. I read a book once called the millionaire next door and it just articulated how most entrepreneurs who do well, just do well over a long period of time. Mm. And you know, of most unlikely people, not flashy. And the, the antipathy of what you just described there, which, you know, makes me feel uncomfortable as well, because you mentioned an interesting thing about creativity. I think creativity is an important part of the makeup of anyone who's going to go into business. I mean, an entrepreneur really is just someone who solves problems, yeah. really, and, and solves them creatively and eloquently and in a way that, that allows for the creation of some wealth. And, you know, and I think the notion that I think that's a much more grounded and sensible notion because I think, on you know, to decide to be an entrepreneur, to decide to go into business or to solve a problem of some sort, it's not an, it's an important undertaking. It's very rarely something you do that's going to be, you're going to be in and out quickly. You know, you're making a long-term commitment, you know, <laughs> sleepless nights and all the rest of it. I suppose in my own case, there are times when I've been more entrepreneurial than others. There are times when I've had to redefine my definition of entrepreneurship. Sometimes I think the most entrepreneurial thing I've done is to get a job. Because as an entrepreneur, you're not always going to be able to go from business to business to business seamlessly. And when I left the pizza business in 92, I sold it to a company called Scott's Hospitality. And, you know, I got into another business immediately and straight away. Whereas actually I'd been also offered a job running a, a vending business, which is quite interesting because it's quite established. And instead I went and bought a business. And I think that was a mistake. I think to have paused there, to have taken a, a, 
a paycheck and to have spent a year or two consolidating my thoughts on what to do next would have probably been a lot smarter in hindsight. But instead, I bought a business with another guy. We piled in and we had four years of agony running a food processing business. We were supplying ready meals to, uh, or ingredients that went into ready meals uh, for the ready meal, fresh ready meal market in the UK in the early 90s. And that, that was, you know, that was a little bit of a reaction. Probably not the best decision I could have made, but hindsight's easy. But, but I certainly think... I definitely counsel people now to take time when they've sold their business in terms of figuring out what to do next and not to rush it. Yeah. What do you think about the right age to be an entrepreneur? I'm reading a bit about this, or there seems to be more stuff out there now about almost a, almost the pendulum is swinging back the other way. So what I mean by that is, you know, it was the Zuckerbergs of the world that are, that are popping up out of grandma's basement and, you know, out of their dorm rooms and becoming billionaires, you know, seemingly overnight. Now, <clears throat> seems to be swinging to actually, you know, what the best entrepreneurs or, or based on, you know, venture capital data, the most successful entrepreneurs that achieve exits are actually in their sort of 40s, 50s. In, in your experience, mm. do you think that's a relevant point? Do you think it matters? Well, look, I think it's a really good point. I mean, the benefit of youth is you've got, boundless energy and lots of enthusiasm right which you can't recreate in your 50s like you know you, i mean there's probably an exception to every rule but predominantly you've got much more energy and much more enthusiasm and you're much more glass half full in your earlier on in your 20s and 30s and you've also got more capacity to take risk i think because you don't have a family yet necessarily in your 20s you you know you've not got kids to school fees and all the rest of it so i think i don't think there is an age i think if you're good enough you you're old enough if you you know and, and if you've spotted an, a problem that you want to solve with a product or a service or a combination of the two why not i think the trick is trying to get a bit of a team together so that you've got some counsel like real counsel like not sort of in the pub people who aren't invested or aren't informed about what you're facing but if you can get some counsel i think you, you've then got the best of both worlds and that's some of what i do now so i'm i'm on the board of quite a few companies that where the, the management teams are younger and i'm i do well with that because i know what it feels like to be in your 20s and feel way out of your depth right and that's i think i feel called cool to just you know i know what that feels like and I've enjoyed, I enjoyed getting alongside you. I enjoyed staying out of the execution and staying out of your way, but, but I enjoyed being there when you needed me to be there. And, you know, there were times when you went off and did things and I, I didn't think it was going to end well, but I didn't know. So I'm learning, I've learned to shut up. And, and unless it's terminal, you know, you've got to give people oxygen. So I think if, you can, if you're young and you can get some counsel, and you can build that into your model, then I don't think age should be a, necessarily be a barrier. Yeah, and, and I think at both ends of the spectrum. So while being in your 40s, 50s or 60s or 70s, I don't think it really matters, you may not have enough, uh, you may not have the unbounded energy of a 20-year-old. You're a hell of a lot wiser. The, the thing is, in your 50s, you can cancel yourself out, right? So a lot more. Now, I mean, there's a whole argument about whether you're too close to it and whether, you know, if someone's a bit removed. I mean, I've got strong views on the fact that you need some non-exec, you need someone who's not in the day-to-day, is not in the weeds to keep, to keep a perspective. But certainly in your 40s and 50s, you've got a lot more to draw on. And there's nothing wrong with coming into entrepreneurship later, which is, I think, back to the original question, which is what makes an entrepreneur? And I think we've got to get much more flexible on our definition of what an entrepreneur is and when to be entrepreneurial and when to appear not to be entrepreneurial. Because it might be that we come to entrepreneurship much later because we found a problem that we feel strongly about that we think we can solve more eloquently than is currently being solved in the marketplace. That's really what we're saying. So it's hard to force that on yourself all the time, right? I'm an entrepreneur. And that was what happened to me. I think I define myself as an entrepreneur having started and built and ran and sold my own company. Then I thought that's what I had to do all the time. 
and um, yeah, it took me a few years to figure out that wasn't necessarily the case. Yeah, that's interesting. One of my big mistakes through the dynamic journey was that in retrospect, I probably should have left that business much earlier from an executive point of view because I was so hell-bent on being creative and launching new things. But what the business needed was a steady hand at the wheel, you know, focused on keeping costs down and you know, improving profits and, you know, more the, more the systematic side. And by me constantly wanting to be entrepreneurial and creative, it, it, it almost created a, not a clash of culture, but, you know, the left hand and the right hand weren't, weren't seamlessly together. And, mm. and I stayed in it because it, was, it seemed like the right thing to do. But, yeah, definitely in retrospect, now that I know my skill sets are more at the startup end, less at the, you know, CEO of, of a business with 150-odd people. I don't think I'll ever do that again because I know that my strength is at the, at the small end. It's, it's yes. something maybe 20-odd people is the, right, is the right pick for me. Right. Beyond that, it requires a skill set that I don't, think I'm, I don't think I have. But I didn't have yeah. awareness and you've kind of got to go through it a few times to know, what you're, to know what you're good at, you know, and not. But through so much of that journey, particularly when I was very young and, you know, we were climbing up around the $10, $20 million mark and my – my CFO was very young as well. You were the first person who said, hey, you, you, need, you need a full-time finance person when nobody else was really educating me on that. And yes. Able just to grow because we were able to get a financial vocabulary and education, you know. And, yeah. And then yes. you educated me on that the management team and the board and the, and the advisors and the finance function and the banks and everything working together need to be one step further in growth than where the business is at because when yes. you get that, get to that point, you're kind of ready for the next level of, of maturity. And most, most tellingly, you know, you, you helped me to realize that because I didn't have any gray hair and we were playing kind of big boy games that I needed a CFO who, who had a lot of gray hair. And we went through a recruiting process, which was, which was almost ageist in reverse. Where yeah, yeah. If somebody hadn't done twenty laps around the block and had a had a lot of grey hair, then they, they yes weren't suitable for the job. And I think that was quite wise of you and and sort of helped us. Yeah. Look, I remember my first. You know, I'd undercooked our finance and admin department in the pizza business years ago, and I remember hiring a guy called Mike Ivers who just he was running a listed business in London, and they'd just gone broke. <laughs> And um, you couldn't hire an accountant. This was probably 1989, maybe 1989, 1990. So accountants were fully employed. You, you had to, the only accountant you could get was someone who was already working for someone else. Anyway, I eventually tracked this guy, came in, and I, I hired him. And we were having to do a turnaround at the time because we, you know, there was a credit crunch on. We'd a bit overextended. And um, we had to do some pretty nifty stuff. And I really liked him. And, when I met him, I, I got him and I did a deal with him and said, look, I'll pay you £35,000 a year, which is a kind of going right. And I said, I'll pay you an extra five for you to teach me everything you know about finance because the numbers that I've got are rubbery and I don't ever want to not know my numbers again. And he, we, we just shook on it. And I spent two years in the trenches with him and he taught me a, a lot. And I was very grateful for that. And we pulled on his experience of going broke with this company where they did a hostile takeover as a listed business. And um, he'd been through the trauma of the banks and all kinds of stuff. And we were pulling on that. So that was really the, I still draw on those two years because that was where I really switched on to the, the finance role and the management of banks and the, you know, how to manage credit and make sure you're one step ahead of the game. Yeah, and then you know you you learned from him, and then you know you you did it yourself, and then yeah. you ended up teaching me. And all my education, really, in business has come from other executives or non-executives that have worked for me or worked with me that have just schooled me. And I've I've been hungry. I was hungry to learn, and I was hungry to blend what I was learning theoretically with with the real world, always. And it always had to be practical. And um, I think the thing with me is because I didn't get a university, so I was hiring grads and people who'd been university. They stopped their education at 23 and 24. And for me, I was just getting started. 
So I carried on. Like there was, I, I had there was no formal education. So it was the whole thing was a bloody education. So I think that stood me in good stead because I just carried on reading and doing stuff. Combination of some form, you know, some some theory and some practice in the real world. That's a very powerful school. Very. That's what you mentioned earlier. The tough school of hard knocks, really. And so, what do you? I couldn't agree more with that. I think that's so apt. But I'm not. I'm not against MBAs. I, I think no, sure. I think there's a real role for it, and definitely a lot of the mistakes I made would have been uh, would not have been made uh, if I if I had have had that kind of education. But then I think the flip may have been true, which if I had have had more theory, I probably wouldn't have gone down some of the. Uh, some of the avenues that looked risky but actually proved successful as well. What, what do you think of business degrees and MBAs in between? Look, I, th- I think they're good. I mean, my kids have all got degrees apart from Danny, who's a builder. But, you know, well, Emma hasn't. She's 11 yet, so she'd be doing real well to have a degree. But <laughs> I'm a big fan of education because but I, I think we might need to rethink it a bit. But certainly I think education for its own sake is a good thing full stop and then I think then we're saying okay what role does education have to prepare us maybe more vocationally and I think that we haven't really answered that question very well yet and I think the internet is changing everything and technology is going to just completely shake that whole area now it's going to take a long time but I think in the next 50 years you're going to see some huge changes in the way kids get their degrees. I just don't think they're worth fifteen, sixty thousand dollars $60,000, really. Like a, a standard BA, I mean, it's just too expensive, really. I mean, a laptop, an open university, you can do it in the weekends and evenings. If it's just a, if it's a degree for its own sake, you, I don't think you need to spend three years of your life turning up to uni and getting, getting drunk to get that. I mean, that's that's my own observation. No, I I, I agree. And certainly having just come out of the US where it's it's like this, after the GFC, a whole generation of young people with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt who are still working in pubs and cafes and can't can't get a job, can't get a leg up in the field that they studied for. Yeah, and we've got that here in Australia now with lawyers. You know, the people who are trained who can't get work. So... The flip side is, you know, we've got a young guy here called Hayden. He's really smart, doing really well with us. But he's going to the US to do his MBA. Uh, he leaves in July. And um, I think it's a really smart move. So I'm all for it, really. Yeah. I think where it falls down is where students feel that it can be on a resume instead of real-world experience or a substitute. I think where the degree track and particularly MBAs fall down is where where people believe that they can act as a substitute of real-world experience. I think that's kind of flawed. Working in conjunction with real-world experience, I think it's great. But I think more important than any of that, coming back to a previous point you made around, because you were really just getting going in your education, your business education in your 20s, you didn't have a degree, so you had to learn by yourself, which makes you a lifelong learner. And all the super successful people that I know, and even more important than that, all the really interesting people that I know are, are self-motivated learners. They, they learn, they've got a thirst for knowledge, whereas people who rely on a, a structured system, once they're outside of that university or school environment, they, yeah, they stop learning. And, and unfortunately, I think that's, that's the majority of us. I think, you mm. know, we, we get our degree or we, we learn yeah. our trade and then we sort of shut down the brain a little bit. And I think um, particularly now that because we're living so much longer, mm. we have an opportunity to have multiple, yeah. multiple careers. Uh, I think there's a bit less of that, whereas I think, you know, in the 70s in the UK, only 8% of kids went to university, right? And they were told at university that they were the cream of the cream. Mm. And when they came out, they had a kind of entitlement attitude, partly based on the class system, the legacy of the class system we had going. And, And I think that's not the case anymore. I think people are coming out now much more grounded and realizing that they've, you know, now it all starts. That's really good. Yeah. So, Mike, you know, with all of your experience starting businesses, running businesses, turning businesses around, consulting to businesses, and now helping businesses to sort of buy, sell, exit, what are the biggest mistakes that that you've made or you see people make? And you know, if you had a blank sheet of paper, so to speak, what what would you what would you advise people out there on if they're interested in this kind of 
startup mm. entrepreneurial world. Mm. I think I think you've got to go back to the problem, the business, or the idea you've got around how to solve the problem. You know, what, what's the problem that you're solving? And and I think you've you know having clarity around that, and having clarity around what else is in that area. What does the marketplace look like? And then, so you know, really going into a venture with your eyes wide open in the full knowledge that it's going to be five years of your life as a minimum, as an absolute minimum. I mean, most businesses, I mean, we're in our 10th, this is our 11th year now in, in, in M&A. And, you know, we, we, I just feel like we haven't even got started yet. So, you know, and I expect to be doing this, you know, for the next 20 years. So, or a version of it anyway. So I, I just think businesses take a long time, much longer than anyone thinks to get established and, and, and then get good. You know, first rule of the game, stay in the game, and then you've got to get good. So I think I see a lot of people with a lot of lack of clarity around what they're doing. And they're really, if you're not careful, you're just buying yourself a job. And if you're not careful, a highly stressful, poorly paid job at that. You've got to really know what your why is. Everyone talks about the why these days, don't they? So if you can get clear on that, I think that's going to help you. And then you, you're just articulating and re-articulating that and re- refining and redefining it and just getting clearer and clearer. And I think that, that's one of the greatest things I see that helps a business stay safe. And the other thing is, is that you don't necessarily need to have a lot of experience, but you need to be cognizant of what resources you're going to you need and you need to find creative ways of getting there it's not just about the money everyone says oh it's the money you know if i had this i could do that but actually necessities of the mother of invention and that's where i think you uh i, I see too many people moaning about not having the money when actually uh, if you got creative you started the business and with next to nothing right Mm. from your kitchen table. I mean, how much money did you have? 19 grand or something like that. Okay, so it's never the money. I mean, I had 11,000. Actually, I had about 4,000 quid when I started the pizza business. And, you know, and then three years later, I think we had 60 stores. So it's not about the money normally, not at least at the beginning. Yeah, so I, I don't know if that's helpful, but I definitely think the clearer you can be about the problem you're solving, and how you're going to solve it and how that's different to how it's currently being solved, you know, is Sorry, number one for me. Yeah. If, if someone's thinking about starting a business, how important do you think it is that they're also thinking about when to exit and how to exit? You know, there's a lot of stuff out there now, mm. you know, be thinking about an exit before you. Yeah. Look, I, I think an exit should be the furthest thing for, from an entrepreneur's mind when he starts a business. Like, I think it's just complete hogwash that you've got to know how you're going to get out now look is it useful to know what sector you're in and what the dynamics are in that sector yes of course and that might include the fact that you know other businesses but if you if you're going to solve a problem and you're going to do that really well and that's going to allow you you know there's an economic model for that and you're going to be able to make money out of it then it's going to prove attractive to other people in time and over time. But I just don't think planning the exit, I mean, private equity firms do, but remember they're, they're not starting businesses. So mm. private equity and capital generally are, are getting involved to then get out later. So they're kind of getting in at the third floor and they want to get out at the fifth floor, right? So whereas starting from scratch, that's a different mindset entirely, I think. Well, once you start something, how do you make sure that you're particularly when you don't have a lot of money, how do you, how do you make sure that you're surrounding yourself with um, good advice that isn't highly agenderized, you know, right. where a, a friend is an accountant, let's say, and they're providing advice, but what they really want is your accounting business for example. Right, right, yeah. How do you do that? Yes, it's a good one. I mean, the thing is with a small business is that, I mean, generally advisors are coming in with, you know, there might be finance, you just mentioned the accountant. So they would come in and advise on the accounting and the tax and the structure, right? And then you might have other people that might come in and advise on marketing and 
website, the branding. And so the advice is often quite siloed. And really what you need, I think, as an entrepreneur is you need someone who can help you take a view on everything and then can enable you to decide when to spend, when not to spend and what order to do things in at a given point in the cycle. I think so that broad over, overarching general advice based on, you know, informed by the circumstances, the situational circumstances i think that's the sort of advice that i wish i'd had and and i did get i mean i got it in the piece of business i sold 26 percent of the stock to a guy called russell smith so he effectively we started a board he became on the board he used to come every month and he was running a running a hundred million dollar leisure company and so russell's advice was was pretty good i mean he wasn't in the weeds he was invested he knew what was going on but he wasn't in the day-to-day. So that was good advice. But the difficulty I had with Russell is that he was second generation and he was operating in a different world. He was listed on the stock exchange. He was making 100 million, you know, he had 100 million revenue and, and, and we were a startup. And so what we lacked from Russell was that he'd never started anything. So he lacked the, what I call that grunt, that sort of, it was just, so... Anyway, I ended up getting another guy called Mike Ivers from the US who who was much more earthy. And so, you know, often you've got to get a blend of input. And I don't think it has to be expensive, you know, and and I think you can right size it at each stage, you know, and it might not have to be monthly to start with. It could be quarterly. But I, I think you've got a, you know, referral you're looking for someone's track record. You know, what have they done that might be similar to what you're contemplating? I mean, you saw that with me. You said that one of the things that attracted you to using me was that I'd had a lot of real world experience Mm. and that I wasn't dealing in theory. And so I I guess that was important to you. So you got to figure out, okay, what, what do I need here? What's going to, you know, what's attractive for me? And then, you know, there's an old saying that says, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And you've just got to be open to that. I I see too many entrepreneurs, me included, stubbornly trying to figure everything out themselves because we're fiercely independent probably by nature. And we've got to learn to open up a bit, I think. But do it intelligently because to open up to the wrong people, that's a waste of time. That's not going to work but to open up to the right people can make a huge difference yeah i couldn't agree more it's a very very difficult thing to balance and i've i've done it well and i've done it poorly and actually now that i'm sort of a little bit i mean i'm still getting i'm still the mentoree as much as i am the mentor because i've still got an enormous amount to learn but you know i think i've provided some good advice and bad advice over the i think the key ingredient and between the people that seem to get the right input is humility that and and i was probably too proud early on i tell you what when your back's up against the wall you'd be amazing how how humble you can become and that, that i often see that is people only reach out when their backs against the wall whereas i think if we can foster humility as an attribute and just be honest you'd be amazed how that sort of humility opens up opens up your world to you know good input because people want to help often more than we realize well that's that's our history as well i mean i i went around and found a heap of people that i didn't want to work with because they wanted to charge me an enormous amount of money to come up with a very long you know plan that was going to be very wordy and wasn't none of their language was fit for purpose you know, a million bucks and and where you struck a chord was that you knew because you'd been there before that at our level, you know, I was still doing a lot of, a lot of things every day and we didn't have time to kind of go offline and see yeah. a three day retreat and, you know, get introspective and, and philosophize. Yes. Um, and so you came in and did a very, very quick exercise. And then you said, and I think I should stay and just sort of sit on the board, help you professionalize the board and I said, thanks, Mike. That's great. I'll be in touch. Your number one piece of advice was to go out and get a, get a CFO. And I took your advice. Yes. Um, your second I remember. Advice, your second piece of advice was 
I know what bad looks like. Let me, let me help you along the journey. And I, and I didn't take you up on that piece of advice. And uh, I ran a, an atrocious process, hired a, let's just say, a person who wasn't a good fit for us. I remember. I remember. Makes me laugh. And then, and then, and then you know, when my back was right against the wall, uh, you rang it. You rang me. I remember it. With my cap in my hand. She was useless. That woman. She tried to sue us for half a million dollars. Do you remember? Oh my God. No, no, I remember that. But look, so there, there's a classic example. I would have done the same. Man, when I was in my twenties, um, I started piece of it at twenty two or whatever it was, and you know, I made some howlers. And if I'd have been, if I'd been around me, trying to help me, I'm not sure I was ready to take half of it. You know, if I, was, if I was able to magically go back and meet myself, I don't think I would have listened to myself because there are some things you just have to learn the hard way. I mean, it's part of human nature, but you hope that it's not going to blow you up. But I think humility is a great attribute in, and I think, you know, it needs to be fostered and the earlier the better. And, you know, one of the great questions is, you know, that I've learned to ask more and more as I've got is what do you think? <laughs> and or you know I don't know or a classic is let me have a think about that I think that's one of the best things an entrepreneur can ever ever learn to do is to say let me have a think about that I'll get back to you if if if, if entrepreneurs just did that I think they'd avoid half their mistakes because the trouble with an entrepreneur is he thinks he's going to make a decision someone gets him in a corner what do you want to do and then it, he doesn't defer or default. And he hasn't yet learned to use the board of directors strategy yet, which is a classic strategy we've used it for, I've used for 30 years, which is, you know, I need to speak to the board. I mean, I was saying that when I didn't have a board because I got taught by Mike Ivers that it was a negotiation and I needed a back door and I needed time to pause and think. And people expected an answer from me because I was in charge, if that makes sense. And I think we need to pause sometimes and do a bit more thinking. You educated me on that, but pretty much from the get-go, but I wasn't ready to le- hear the lesson or I thought I was learning the lesson, but, but definitely wasn't. And I'm, I'm such, a, such an action-orientated person, and particularly, yeah. particularly when, yeah, I kind of thought my job was to make decisions, so I'd get out there and make decisions. Yeah, yeah, I got it. Look, you, you were ready for aim. Like yeah. I, I, anyone who wanted to ask me, you know, what's that like, I'd say he's ready for aim is what Ant is. And in, in a good way, because, you know, that's, if we're talking about sales, <laughs> ready, fire, aim every day of the week, you know, but there are other things that it pays to slow down. I'm on the, we just created a board and I'm helping an entrepreneur now who's a pretty successful guy. And the main thing I've been doing in the last three months is slowing him down. Yep. In my retrospection, you know, post us working together and what I sort of promised myself to do kind of here on in, Learning, learning the lesson that I, I probably could have learned ten years earlier was, in a retrospective, you end up you end up doing um, you know autopsies of of your decisions and working out the good ones and the bad ones. Yes. And when, I, when I think back across that that whole business, and, and there's been there's been others, but, but that, that was the main one, uh, and certainly where you and I were working together. The key takeaways for me were that for the most part, the, the decisions we made were were pretty good, and I, I don't think. I needed to make any more good decisions. If I just could have made, you know, 30% less bad. Mm. And actually what I mean by that is 30% less decisions. Right. If I'd have just made less decisions, taken more time, I think ultimately, you know, and I think the other one which you taught me, but it, you know, probably took me a decade to, to properly learn was sell fast and buy slow. Maybe you could talk us through that. Well, it's an old adage in, in M&A, it's particularly relevant, which is um, the first thing to say about entrepreneurship is that really entrepreneurship is about selling something, whether it's a service or a product. So that ability to sell and that desire to put whatever you've got out there has got to be the fundamental building block for doing anything. And it's the acid test of whether the product or service you've conceived is of any value. And, and the, the, the marketplace is the ultimate it's the arbiter in these things and, and, and will quickly tell you whether you're right or you're wrong. And then if you're wrong, you've got some feedback and then you make some adjustments. And the best thing, you've got to get out to that marketplace as quick as you can. You've got to keep getting out to that marketplace. And, and mainly the entrepreneur's job is to stop everything that gets in the way of getting out to the marketplace, I think, mm. by and large. But I think in terms of buy, slow, sell, fast, what that means is that 
when you're selling, you want to get it done. So once you've agreed something, get it done and get it finished. When you're buying, you normally got other options. There's no great, there's often no great need to rush it when you're acquiring. And so if you look at mergers and acquisitions, for example, all the buyers we deal with are trying to slow the process down and they're giving us reasons why they, they can't act in a particular way or in a particular time frame and we're and we're butting up against that and challenging that at each and then if if we're selling and we've got terms agreed for us it's it can't go quick enough because the the longer that you're in that you've agreed it but it hasn't happened the greater the chances that it it might not happen and it's just an old adage that seems to ring true and be somewhat timeless i think it certainly does when it comes to hiring people. <laughs> you know? Right, yeah. Yeah. Hire slow, fire fast. Yeah. That one you mean? Yeah. And, you know, hire for attitude, train for skills is a good one too. Like you've got to get the attitude and the culture right with people. It's interesting. I've always been really good at hiring for other people and terrible at hiring for ourselves. We're getting better, but I'm just, I mean, honestly, I could write you a book on my own hires and where I've gone wrong, but I seem to be good at hiring for other people and I use a process and I'm, but see, I'm detached. When I'm hiring for you or for someone else, there's a detachment which is useful. Whereas I think when it's your own business, I think we can, we can go to the proverbial jelly when it comes to the key, key moment. The other thing is you, you, you end up, if you're not careful, hiring people like you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So you end up with a bunch of people just like you, which is not really how you put a balanced management team together. Well, certainly the best and longest term hires that I've made were the two that that you helped me run the most sophisticated process with. And the, the way the facts proved out was that not only were they good hires, you know, they've grown as the business grew. They were a good cultural fit, but they were nowhere near like me. Or complimented me really well. Yes, I suppose one of them is Dan, right? Well, correct, yeah. And so both of the guys we're talking about are, are now the CEO and the CFO of. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yeah, they're still there. Yeah. So yeah, um, so yeah. So a good process is critical, and and perhaps even more important or equally important is to have someone detached who's you know not mm. so in, who's not going to be on a plane with this person. Mm. he's not going to be sort of sitting at a cafe or a bar or you know because because when you when you know you're going to be working with someone day in day out you know you, you're right you, you pick someone almost like like he's picking a spouse you know because yeah spending a long time with this person yeah and it gets way too emotive yes yeah i think that's i think that's a great yeah point. mike is there anything else that you want to any, anywhere else you want to drive no i, I don't think so is, is this the sort of thing you, you're after Anne? Absolutely perfect, mate. Yeah, it's, okay. To be honest, this is the most talking I've done. And, great. Which isn't a bad thing. Um, That's a great thing. Yeah, I think I think so. Yeah. So um, so yeah, I, th- I think, and and it always comes down to the person on the other end, right? You know, so some people want to give a massive long monologue, other people just want to have a conversation. So okay, so look, m- maybe we could wrap up and by just talking a little bit about, you know, finding your niche or finding the area that you're comfortable in and you're happy to do that for the rest of your life. So I think I've been thinking about this a bit lately. Yeah. Maybe wrapping that into like a a holistic life thing, because one of the things that we touched on when we were planning this was talking about, you know, you had some great points about work is just part of your life and Mm. and it's not, it's not everything. So maybe wrapping in that kind of thing and that'd be, that'd be a perfect way to, to conclude. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I think one of the things with entrepreneurship is we probably need to redefine what success is for ourselves because, you know, if it's only about the numbers and it's only about the career and it's only about the business, experience has taught me that that's never going to get, that's never going to float your boat ultimately. And that, I mean, I would vote for balance. I'm just not very good at it. I've become better at balance, but balance is really difficult to do. Uh, Even though I would vote for it and I would, I agree with balance. It's been one of the hardest things for me to learn. But certainly looking back up and in terms of where I am now, I'm, I'm, my life's much more balanced than it ever was in terms of work and home and other interests. And, um, you know, that, that's been a big 
a big deal for me. And and I had an interesting conversation with my eldest son, Daniel, the other day, who told me he just bought some lottery ticket and it was a $40 million win or something. And he was telling me what he would, what he would do if he won. And he said to me, what would you do, Dad, if, if you won? I said, I'd go to work tomorrow just like I do every day. And I said, and he said, well, what else would you do? I said, I'd carry on exactly as I am. I said, I'm doing exactly what I want to do, where I want to do it, in the city I've always dreamed about living in. And and I said, I, I do work that I think is meaningful and I think it's cool. And most of the time, it doesn't even feel like work. It feels it's the kind of thing I'd, I'd do for fun. So I think if – I'm not saying that this is easy to achieve or – is our birthright, but I've been lucky to get to this position now. I came to it pretty late. I've been doing this for 10 or 11 years and I learned enough about myself to know what I shouldn't be doing. Um, and diversity of interest was a key driver for me. And so when I looked at some of the transactions I'd done, some of the business transactions I'd done, I enjoyed the deal. So I ended up getting into m and I think I'm suited to it. I think it's something I'm good at and my 30 odd years in business has given me a grounding, I guess, to allow me to sort of do this sort of work and um, to have it not really feeling like work, to be honest. So I think if we can get to a place where we're comfortable and we enjoy what we do and it doesn't always feel like work, then we've kind of cracked it really. And, and you know, I think trying to get it done in five days a week, if you can, it's, I mean, it's not going to happen all the time. And if you like what you do, it doesn't really matter. But certainly, you know, you are not going to be on your deathbed. You know, it's well known that we it, very rarely do people on their deathbed talk about not being, wishing they'd been at work more. That's a reality that we ought to face, really. I think that's a great way to wrap up, Mike. Thanks very much for coming on to the show. Really, It's a pleasure. Really appreciate it. And, um, you know, giving us an insight into your, your 30 years of, uh, of school of hard knocks. Yeah. 35 years now, just, just, just for the record. Good stuff. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Well, that's a wrap for today, everyone. I sincerely appreciate your time. I'd love to hear your feedback and get your reviews. If there's anyone who you think I should be interviewing, send me their details and I'll reach out. And please share this with anyone in your life who you think might connect with what we're all about here at The Antitoxin. Have fun out there today and try not to take life too seriously.